listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. I was um, thinking about, okay, what do I preach this week? Where, where do we go for this kind of this one-off sermon that doesn't really fit in anything that we've been doing and, and what is the what has kind of been the air of our culture and where is our church at and what are some things that are that are coming our way and um, it finally hit me last night it, I got into a, a sermon that I preached five years ago out of First Peter and so I'm going to be in First Peter five this morning and um, First Peter um, was very helpful because we're dealing with suffering. But also, amidst that suffering, dealing with um, um, pressing into Christ, finding meaning and joy in that suffering. And also, not only have we been doing this, but we're also looking to raise up new elders. Or at least today, we're going to be uh, voting on uh, a new elder. And so First Peter 5 kind of brings in this whole uh, mixture of where we're at as a church, where we're at as a society, the direction we're going, and then also kind of what we're going to be seeing as far as the role of elders. And so that's why I kind of brought us in there this morning. But to really kind of start this uh, sermon off this morning with a much greater punch, I have a really funny story about my boy Malachi about a few years ago. This is one of my, it's like my top two story of Malachi, and there's so many. So we were, uh, I was standing on my front porch, and Malachi may have been four or five at the time, and um, he comes riding down the driveway on a big wheel. You know, the three wheels, the big wheel, and then, and so he comes riding down, and I do this double take, and I go, Malachi! And he looks at me and he stands up and he does this number. Like, you know, Malachi and I have similar mannerisms, right? So he stood up like this. He's in nothing but a diaper. And, and he's four or five years old. He doesn't need diapers. He had somehow managed to find an old stash of Redeemer kids' unused diapers in our garage. Because as a church planter, you hold everything that is the church's. And he decided to change into the diaper and just start riding the big wheel and I was like, at first I go, son, go show your mother and then change. <laughs> it was one of the funniest things. And so there is certain clothing, right? Certain dress that is proper and is right. When I saw Malachi in the diaper at that moment, it wasn't proper right for him to be in the diaper, <laughs> diaper alone. As humorous as that is, there's a proper clothing, there's a proper adornment that is right for the church. There's a clothing or adornment that is not a, hey, let's just look good so people think we're put together, like our family's good or me as an individual. Yeah, I'm good. That's not the sort of clothing or adornment but rather a clothing or an adornment that is wrapped in the virtues of God and His holiness, a proper adornment. 
Peter does that for us here in the book of 1 Peter. He brings us into a proper clothing for the church. And he does so by addressing this clothing even amidst suffering. And he gives meaning to this suffering. And just so you know, we'll see the word clothe here in this passage, but he also, you see this theme even in instructing women in the church not to be worried about their external adornments and the braiding of hair, but really a pure and undefiled heart, that sort of clothing. But that's really a picture of us all. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter begins really in chapter 1 just introducing us to the reality that we are in suffering. We're in a time of suffering. Writing to the first century church, and he is writing to the church that is scattered throughout the diaspora, and they have been persecuted. And they are continuing to be persecuted during this time. If you remember in the book of Acts, as soon as the Spirit fell, the church immediately, especially by the unconverted Jews, were being persecuted and it was causing the church to scatter throughout the Mediterranean. Peter is writing to this church that is suffering. And he does, he does so by writing something that is extremely offensive. He says in the first chapter, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, these words. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, my buddy, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's highly offensive. It's offensive because what Peter is saying is that your suffering is doing something. It has meaning. It has purpose. It's refining you. It's producing in you joy that is inexpressible, meaning I have no words for it. I can't explain why, but this suffering is pointing us, it's purifying us more and more into the image of Christ. And Jesus in chapter 2 is the perfect example of that suffering. Peter goes as far to offend us even more, saying that we are to follow in the example of Christ's sufferings. The one who took on the cross on purpose for the purpose of bringing us salvation. Peter says, follow in his example. And so we're to example Christ in our submission. Peter goes on in our submission to governing authorities. I know we don't like that. To our spouses. Some of us don't like that. To one another. Some of us don't like that. But all of it, Peter is saying, even amidst persecution, even amidst suffering, do these things. Submit to one another. It will produce joy inexpressible. He goes on further in chapter 4 that there is an aim to all of this. Don't just suffer because Peter is just some kind of twisted apostle. He's like, hey, suffering's fun. Let's all just inflict ourselves with pain. That's not what he's doing. There's an aim, there's a goal, there's an objective for our suffering. 
And so he calls us to godly endurance and that we are to, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, we are to entrust ourselves, our souls, to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter is speaking to the church. He's speaking to us. Granted, some of the recipients of this letter have never met Peter, never saw Peter. So you and I are reading this this letter, just like some of the first century church believers are reading this letter. And so Peter is saying, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. While you're suffering, entrust yourself to God and continue to do good. He doesn't say enact revenge, get even, start throwing a temper tantrum, start misbehaving. He doesn't say any of that. He gives no room or excuse to opt out of godly living just because suffering is coming their way. In fact, he says, press harder into it. And I would say we are in a time of suffering. I mean, we're dealing with social issues on uh, an astronomical level, left and right. We're dealing with COVID again, another round of it. We had a conversation the other day, a year ago, I, I didn't know anybody who had COVID. And now I know people who have had COVID or have been in intensive care or people who have died from it. Never had that before. Now it's hitting closer. It's more at home. Political tensions are on the rise. Again, that's no new thing, right? But it's continuing. It's just like it's a big machine that feeds itself. There's constant tensions and divisions within the church as usual. There's changes here at Redeemer. We're always having to change as of lately. And so there's an element of suffering with that. But we need to make sure that we are properly clothed amidst all the suffering. I mean, we can sit here and try to break down every single topic of every single issue, politics, um, social movement, social justice, you know, how to view um, COVID and how to view vaccines and all this kind of stuff and try to give you the very simple tools how to deal with each and every one of those. But we honestly don't have the time and I'm not saying we'll avoid it. We need to engage in those things. But at the end of the day, you have a responsibility as a disciple of Jesus to be clothed in his righteousness, to press into that. And as you press into that, that will inform your sufferings. That will inform your decisions. That will inform your relationships. So how are we as a church body going to continue to make sure that we are properly clothed in Christ? And we do this by being clothed in his word. By going to the scriptures. But we also, as we'll see here in this passage, do this by looking to the shepherds or elders, pastors. And we do that because the Lord has put them among us. Today we're going to be, I mentioned this, we'll be voting on installing a new elder. But we have to ask ourselves before we get there, do the elders that we currently have and the one that we're considering Are they men who clothe themselves with the example of Christ? Not the one who we're voting on today is only on display, but myself, Sean, Jory. We have to constantly be put under the microscope of Scripture, 
Are we clothing ourselves in the example of Christ? Are we as men able to endure suffering with a Christ-like example? Do we live as though we are anticipating a crown of glory? Do we clothe ourselves in humility in such a way that if the church were to replicate our behaviors, replicate our words, our actions, that it would reflect a Christ-like humility? And this is important. And so you, the church, we, the church, need to ask these questions, again, not because of just a vote today, but because of the days ahead will not be easy. They're not going to be easy. If you can just kind of see what's constantly on the news circulating around, it's just going to be more trouble in that sense. And that's not a fear-mongering kind of thing, like it's going to get worse before it gets better. But what I'm talking about is it's just not going to be easy. Following Jesus is a life of suffering. Opposing the culture, the world, is constantly being a target for the works of the devil. As soon as we press into obedience, as soon as we press into humility, as soon as we press into the example of Christ, I guarantee you the devil is near. He will come after you, he'll come after your marriage, he'll come after your children, and he will come after the church. Austin was right when he said last week, we're dealing not mainly with a conflict of issues outside of the church with the government and local authorities. We, it really starts here. This is where the enemy begins to really divide. It's within the church, within the walls of the church. If he can tear us down, he can keep society from really knowing the truth of the gospel. So you need to ask yourself, can you follow Tony? Can you follow me, Sean, Jory, as men who are capable to shepherd this flock, Redeemer Church, and to do so with endurance in the sufferings of our day? And so we're going to see Peter charge the elders and the church to be clothed in the ways of Christ. And so we'll be charged to be clothed in a few ways Verse 1 is the charge, but then 2 through 5, we see really the, the working out of that charge. And so we're going to be called to, or charged with clothing, uh, to be clothed with an example in verses 2 through 3. Clothed with an example. Clothed with an unfading glory in verses 4 to the first part of verse 5. And then last, clothed with humility. The last part of verse 5. Clothed with an example. Clothed with an unfading glory. And clothed with humility. Let me read all of these verses together. And let's get into it. So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Father, help us understand your word now. What it means, what the purpose is for elders in the local church and how that is necessary in the work of the kingdom. Father, this is about you and your glory and the work that you've accomplished through Christ Jesus. So help us understand your word today, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the word exhort means really strong, a strong encouragement or an urgency here. So Peter is going around and he is addressing the elders, if you will, or the shepherds, the pastors among the land of this very early formation of the church. You don't have churches that have been established for a long period of time and that have, you know, brick and mortar in the land. It's a really kind of a scattered approach here, but Peter is reaching out to them and he is calling to those who are really leading the local congregations. And there's an urgency here. And so these leaders that Peter is addressing, he addresses them kind of from two positions, one of authority and two of relationship. Peter comes out saying that he is a partaker of Christ, or excuse me, he is a witness, a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter is an apostle. He introduced himself in chapter one, verse one in that way, an apostle meaning somebody who is to be sent forth. In this case, Jesus appointed Peter to be an apostle for the church, sent out essentially in the same weight as an Old Testament prophet for the New Testament church. And so that capital A apostle no longer exists. That ended in the first century when the uh, disciples or the apostles had passed away. So Peter comes in as really a part of the foundation to the church movement. Jesus is the cornerstone, and also on that foundation are the teaching of the apostles. And so Peter comes in with an authority, but not an authority to hold it over the local elders or to press down the church, but in a sort of humble way. An authority, he says, it really comes to him from Christ. And this authority he exercises is for the purpose to give the local elders confidence in the work that they are doing. He's saying, look, I, I come to you. I have seen the Lord. I have been there. I have been present. I'm a local, or I'm also a, a fellow elder in this. You are not alone. And that is the relational component. So he comes with authority. He comes with relationship. Peter understands first that he is a sinner saved by grace. Peter didn't somehow earn his degree to become this apostle. It was by the grace of God that he became who he was. Going from lost to found. This is why in the third verse of chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't say, I'm the Lord, I'm the man, I did this. No, Peter is identifying, we are all in this together. 
He has a unique role and position as apostle. So yes, there's authority, but he understands first he is a sinner that is saved by grace. And so at the end of the day, Peter is saying, look, I'm not going to call you to do anything I'm not also willing to do. And Peter's not saying, you need to do this, but I'm exempt from this because I'm up here on this high pedestal. It's not at all what he's calling them to do. He says, I'm in the trenches with you and I've done this. And if I haven't done it, I'll do it with you as well. So he's a fellow elder. He's a shared witness and he's a partaker. So he's saying also that he's a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And so this, this, is a, this tells us something unique. That this is an active participation. Meaning the glory that is to come through Christ means that, that Christ is active in the heavens. He's actively working. He's actively... So he's actively at work in the kingdom of God. And Peter is saying that he is participating in that as well as the church and the elders. And so what I wanted to do is encourage you. We are not alone in our sufferings. We're not alone in our sufferings. And I wanted you to be encouraged by that. The other day, I got to uh, uh, sit down and watch the movie Rudy with my two older kids. And because uh, I've told my son about this movie so many times, and I'm like, okay, you're 13 now, we can watch this. And, uh, and you know, me being the ex football player, I'm like, yes, I get to relive a little bit of my dreams. And, um, and so the team, there's a time where the team, it's like the highlight of the movie, you know, after all the you know, girlfriend drama, blah, blah, blah. You're like, okay, this is boring. Let's get to the part that counts. And so at the end of the movie, um, it's his senior year. He's been able to, be, to walk on, be on the practice team. He just wanted to dress one game. He wasn't going to be able to. And so all the seniors basically said, hey, coach, I want to sit this one out so Rudy can play. And then all, just in a really cool demonstration, all the teammates throw their jerseys down, wanting Rudy to dress. And he eventually gets to dress and have his infamous uh, one tackle and play. But what you, be, what you see in that is that throughout all four years of him playing ball, there was an element of suffering. I mean, he's just getting beat up. And it was kind of fun watching my kids interact with that, especially my daughter, Gabby. It seems like girls don't generally understand why guys like to beat each other up. At least that's the conversation in my house watching UFC or football, like, why would you do that? And Rudy's just like flying across the screen, getting beat up and just taking it again and again. And I'm just like, honey, this is, it's weird, but we love it. And so for four years, he's suffering and his team comes alongside and joins him in his sufferings, right? Carries him along, leading to that crown of glory, being the only player to ever be carried off the field, in Notre Dame history. Peter shows up and he tells us, look church, we're not alone. We are not alone. We have an authority that we can trust, that is reliable, that is good, and we have a relationship that binds us together, not only binding us to Christ, but binding us to one another. That authority is Christ, and that relationship we have with him is experienced among the church body among the flock 
And so what we see here is that we are participating in something that is ancient. This is something that the church has been doing since the very beginning. Peter writing this letter is not only just writing to the first century church, but even to us today. Trust my authority given to me by Christ Jesus. Trust this word of God. And then also trust the relationships that you will have within the body and what God means for them to be in your life. So you can trust, church, the authority of Jesus. You can trust his word. You can trust his works through a broken, messed up, flawed church. Because that's all we are. Constantly fumbling around Sinning, making mistakes, messing all sorts of things up. But it is through the church that God sanctifies us, that he grows us, that he purifies us. And ultimately, in this big mess we call a church, we end up finding inexpressible joy. From people who end up hurting us the most, we end up finding joy as God sanctifies us. So this is the means by which Jesus is Actively, actively, he's alive right now. He's sitting on his throne right now, dispensing grace and mercy, pouring out his spirit among those who are being saved. He's actively shepherding his people, and he does that through the church body. So I want you to know that we're not alone. You're not alone in pursuing glory, even in these hard times. Jesus had led the way. He led the example in pursuing the cross. uh, Peter was a witness to that fact. And now we join the church of ages in that same suffering. So I want to ask you to lean into the suffering. Lean into it. And to do so knowing that you're not by yourself. So Peter, with boldness, he presents a charge to the elders of the churches with the hopes the elders would lean into the charge as an example to the flock. So here we are, clothed with an example, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Clothed with an example. So he says, shepherd the flock that is among you. A shepherd is one, by definition, who leads with the implication of providing for, to guide, to help, to take care of. So a shepherd is gentle, is caring, but also at the same time is willing to help pick up the sheep and carry them back to the fold, is willing to fight off wolves if necessary is willing to get their hands dirty, right? Maybe calloused on the knuckles and fighting off the wolves, but also soft in the palms and carrying the sheep back to the fold. And so this shepherd is one who is compassionate and gracious. There is a flock that is given to pastors. In my, in my arena where I deal with a lot of pastors, we, we often think that we are something or we try to be a certain way so that we can attract a certain number of people like we are the show, we are the thing. But that's not the way that God has designed his church. He is raising up men who aspire to the office of overseer as elders, as shepherds 
for the purpose of shepherding and pastoring a flock that he is going to give them. And so it's not something that, oh, I've done this. I've been able to get all these people in. Look, the Lord knows my capacity, Sean's, Jory's capacity, Lord willing, Tony's capacity, and who God wants to be uh, cared for under that leadership. And so the Lord is going to do the drawing. We are not going to be doing the drawing. And so in the same way that a shepherd is given a flock, so a flock is given a shepherd. So we often treat shepherds or pastors like we would in the corporate world. Like they're just a position that is hired out. And so we just need somebody to fulfill a certain type of role. And so they're going to be hired in. And once they come into this position, they're responsible to be committed to this church body. But the flock has no responsibility. They don't have to be committed to the shepherd. Only the shepherd has to be committed to them. But it doesn't have to happen in reverse. But I think scripture is, speaks very clear against that. We have to be humble as pastors to understand that the Lord has given us souls to steward. But we also have to be men and women who are congregants in the body to understand that the Lord has given us men to help shepherd our souls. And we need to submit ourselves in a godly way to that leadership. Jared Wilson says in his book, The Pastor's Justification, Pastor, the people you currently have in your congregation are those whom God in his wisdom has dispensed to you. Wilson says further that we are to see the people as the missional purpose itself. Meaning, you're not a means to an end. Hey, I need you to continue to inflate my ego as the lead pastor. Hey, our mission is really out there more than anything. But Jared reminds us that this is the mission for pastors in a lot of ways. To help shepherd you, to lead you to Christ, to help you go make disciples, to help you go reach the lost, to help you fill in the blank. And so Peter says that we're to exercise oversight, not compulsively, but willingly, not out of feeling obligated or with an irritable urge to behave a certain way, but voluntarily, right? Not constantly being angry with the sheep. You may have heard of pastors who are just constantly frustrated with their church. They don't like their church, but they're just there because it gets them the paycheck. That's not uh, exercising an authority properly. We're to do this not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And again, we're not to use the body for our own purpose, for our own gain, so that I can get, you know, maybe one day write a book. If I do, whew, that is the Lord's hand right there. But write a book and then use you so that my name can go out. And then as soon as I'm done here, I'll just move on to somewhere else so I can continue to get my name greater and greater. It's not how a shepherd is. We're to eagerly serve the body, wanting to serve the body. And we're not to be domineering, but examples. It's not, you do what I tell you. You need to listen to me. I am the authority. You better or else. No. As examples. We're not to manipulate, but be an example. And what is that example? He tells us in chapter 2. 
Verse, I'm going to start in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is the example. Look to Christ. See how he did not sin. See how he handled adversity. See how he handled suffering. How he handled trouble. How he handled, you know, gossip and slander and people coming out against him. See how he did these things and follow in his example. And Peter is saying, the elders, the under shepherds, the pastors of the church need to be exampling this for the people. They need to be the ones on the front end who are doing this. Not the only ones, but in the very least, the elders need to be doing this. Listen to this convicting paragraph Jared Wilson writes in his book. Pastor, whatever you are, your church will eventually become. If you are a loudmouth boaster, your church will gradually become known for loudmouth boasting. If you are a graceless idiot, your church will gradually become known for graceless idiocy. The leadership will set the tone of the community's discipleship culture, setting the example of the church body's personality. So whatever you want to see, that is what you must be. If we want our churches to be of one mind, to be of one heart, to assassinate their idols and feast on Christ to be wise and winsome with the world they have forsaken, to be gentle of spirit but full of confidence and boldness, and to be blossoming with the fruit of the Spirit, we must lead the way. This is what we're called to, pastors, elders. But as Pastor Doug said several weeks back, The qualification for elders isn't just left to elders alone. That's what they must be. The qualification for elders is who we must be as the church. Because we can't raise up elders if if men in the church, in the least, are not living out those qualifications. And so for a moment, I want to call us to just talking about membership a little bit. As we consider... Elders this morning, we need to consider the value of membership and why this matters. Membership is important because it identifies a people or a body of people, a flock. Peter talks about the flock. Well, who's the flock? Is in this case in Springfield, is it every church member? Is it every Christian in the city of Springfield that I'm a shepherd for? No. According to the definition of this, it's determined by the local body, that local congregation that you have. 
So membership helps identify who are the people that we have a responsibility for. Membership is also important because it identifies a shepherd who can shepherd that specific flock. Membership is important because it holds the flock accountable to the shepherd that the Lord has put in place. It also helps us be accountable to one another, right? It helps us as elders know who's in the body and who's just hanging out on Sunday but not really committing themselves. Who is it that we need to pray for? Who is it that we need to go visit when they're in the hospital sick? Who is it that's committed to the mission of making disciples among us? Right? Who is it that we need to help lead to the table, to the Lord's table? Who is it when uh, a husband or wife starts to go stray or an individual starts to go stray? Who can we enact church discipline upon if we don't have some sort of membership? How can we raise up deacons or elders in our body if nobody's wanting to be committed to the body in membership? So membership allows us to do this. It matters. As elders, we end up knowing who our people are and who our people are not. We pray for our members by name. We respond to them biblically as they need. We're able to exercise our God-given authority when they submit themselves to the body. And here's the reason for that. There is great joy in it. There's great joy in being a member in the church. There's great joy in responding to the Lord and saying, these elders are the shepherds put as overseers for my soul, and these people are the flock of which God has graciously placed me. These are my people because of the grace and the mercy of Christ. There's a relationship there. There's a commitment there, right? And I understand it's really difficult because we live in a very unique time in a unique part of the world where we have a buffet of churches on every stinking corner in this city. So if you wanted to go get worship somewhere else and get preaching here and get Sunday school there and get youth there and get college ministry there, you can do that. You can dabble. But what about our brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe where there's only one church within a 500 to 1,000 mile radius? You get one body because we are one body. And we need to commit to one another. But there's joy in it. There's joy in the suffering. Because a lot of the reasons we leave churches and we move on to another place is because something happens that we don't like. I don't care what the pastor's doing. I don't care what the leaders are doing. I don't care, you know, for this roof that keeps leaking. I don't care for whatever it is, right? And so we move on. But the Word of God says, no, don't do that. There's no joy in that. You're just chasing after things that are fleeting. But chase after something that is eternal. Fight for unity. And so, I just want to let you know that there's a, when the elders lead in a Christ-like way, there's a real joy that then permeates among the body. There's a real joy. And so I want you to call to examine, do the elders have the character of Christ? When they, when they speak, is it clear that they love you? That they care for you. 
that they're willing to stand for truth. And so I want to invite you to the body as a member and not just as a spectator. Look, we want to help you, help mold you into the image of Christ. That's our goal, our objective. We don't just get to rule blindly and you just submit yourself blindly in every single way. We are held to a standard. We are held to the word of God. But don't rob us the joy of not being able to pastor you and shepherd you. We want you to follow in our example so that you don't become, we don't want to be the loud mouth boasters. We don't want to be the arrogant bunch. We don't be the, want to be the prideful people. We want to be honorable. We want to be loving. We want to be humble. And we want you to follow in our example as we follow Christ. And so even amidst suffering, the elders are the example, are to example the humble, compassionate leadership of Jesus and to do so with an enduring aim and glory. So verses 4 and 5. We're to be clothed with unfading glory. And when the chief shepherd appears. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise you who are younger. Be subject to the elders. This title chief shepherd. Isn't a new word. Or a new title that Peter made up. This is something that would have been common in their time. The chief shepherd was the overseer of the shepherds when a flock was too large to be attended uh, to be attended well by one, as one commentator puts it. And so what we're what we're dealing with here is that we have a chief shepherd that is Jesus, who is operating in a plurality of elders, that is the shepherds he puts throughout the world throughout time to shepherd his flock. And so we as pastors, we are shepherds, but really we're under shepherds answering to the chief shepherd who is overseeing us as we oversee the body that he has put under our care. And so what this means then is that Jesus is actively shepherding his people. He is actively shepherding his people and he's doing it through local pastors and his word that is alive and active. And so when he appears, right, so he gives, Peter gives these elders some sort of hope. Yeah, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of hard things that are going on. There's a lot of idols that have to be killed. There's a lot of change that needs to happen, and it is difficult. But he's saying, hang on, because your chief shepherd is going to appear. And this isn't just like metaphorical, but a literal appearance of the Lord. Peter has done that a couple other times in chapter 1 and in chapter 4 where he's reminding us the objective, the goal, the aim is hang on in chapter 4. Hang on because one day Jesus is coming back. Endure. And so he turns to the pastor saying, endure, lead the way in knowing that your work is not in vain. What you're doing is not for nothing. And in the end, you will receive the crown of glory. The word unfading uh, refers to a red flower whose color was unfading. This crown is a crown that will never fade. The crown of glory made sense to the audience, really in this Greco-Roman world, where a wreath of leaves was given to those who won an athletic competition. So a gold crown of golden leaves was given as a reward 
to civic benefactors. Job's commentary says. So the picture of the unfading crown to the elders of the church is to remind them their victory is certain through Jesus. Their certainty in receiving a crown. It's not, well, maybe, we're not really sure, but no, there is certainty, there's assurance. So endure to the end. Even amidst suffering, it is worth the eternal reward of having him. But look, this crown is not the same as earthly crowns. This contrasts that. The earthly crowns are of Chapter 1, verse 24, where it says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Earthly crowns will fade and fall, but not the crown of life. And so elders then are to be an example then to the younger. This term younger is kind of unique. It's not necessarily meaning age, though it has that indication. But really, Peter had divided the church into two categories. Really, the pastors and the non-pastors, the shepherds and the younger, okay? That's sort of kind of what's going on here. And so really, those who are the qualified, called elders of the church and those who are not. And so he addresses everyone as younger. So perhaps Peter is not just addressing specific churches, but believers as a whole, right? He's preaching to the whole church in the diaspora, And as they're in the beginning phases of developing structure to local congregations, he's helping shape the language, elders. And so until that's developed, Peter is instructing believers to subject themselves to those who are qualified as shepherds of the faith. He's saying, be subject to them. Be subject. That is the same language Peter uses to instruct the church earlier in subjecting themselves to governing authorities and to subjecting themselves to their husbands and wives. And so this definition of submission or subjection is to the orders or directives of someone to obey, to submit to, obedience, submission. And so what I need to tell you, what Peter is not saying is, again, he's not telling us to blindly submit to government, to blindly submit to a spouse, to blindly submit to the elders of a church, to blindly submit to the church body, but to submit to them as called by Scripture. The government is not God. God is God. Your spouse is not God. God is God. I am not God. God is God. And so we have the Word of God that directs us and leads us, and that's our ultimate submission, is to Christ first. And his word. And we're to hold each other accountable to that. Even the elders of a church. I was preparing last night. And some of you know I have uh, arthritis in my spine and my hip. And from my old Rudy days. And uh, I was in my room. I always have to like change the position of what I'm sitting and everything. Because it's never comfortable. And all of a sudden, my sciatic nerve just went, just full throttle. And uh, it was really painful for about 15 seconds. And, you know, and after that, it finally calmed down. But it was painful, but then it was weird, because then I had a a spiritual thought. (laughs) Which most people might be like, I need some ibuprofen. But I was like, I have a spiritual thought here. I'm a broken frame. 
I'm a broken person. Even the, the act of bending or sitting in a certain way can bring pain. It can cause pain or a nerve to be pinched. But as the Lord would just even grant me breath and the strength, the health, the endurance, I just, I'm going to keep on. Right? I'm going to keep on doing what I have to do. And then in that moment, I began to think about just the future reality that we will be with Christ forever. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more anxieties and no more worries, no more temptations. And so it was just a personal call. Keep going, Greg. Just endure. <laughs> Get some ibuprofen. Endure. And so church, you are poised for endurance. Or are you poised for endurance? Or are you focusing on the pain and the struggle of the now? When you see your elders, do you see men whose lives are aiming towards the heavenly goal and glory? Or does it seem to be pointed elsewhere? Do they seem to be just caught up in the pain and the struggles of things? I know I've been guilty of that. If you can see they are aiming towards the goal of Christ, then you are called to follow their example even when it hurts. And we have to stop looking at the short horizon. We need to look at the long horizon further out. Because we love to see things in short-term goals. You know, my five to ten year plan with my job, my career, with schooling, with marriage, with retirement, raising kids. Like we set all these short-sighted goals, and they're not bad, they're good, but we often forget the greater horizon and a greater glory that is to come. For example, one that comes to mind right now, in Ephesians, as husbands, we are called to care for our wives, to wash our wives in the water of the Word, and for what purpose? To present her to Christ. That's a future horizon. Right? We want our wives to be presented to Christ as the church, as an elder. I want you to be presented to Christ as spotless. Not that I make you clean or you make yourselves clean, but I'm continuing to lead you to follow Jesus. And so we need to set our horizon out further, thinking about the grander and greater goal. And so I want you to follow us as we keep aiming you towards that greater horizon and glory where the real hope and the real joy is found. Because the reality is the crown of glory is not just reserved for elders, but it's reserved for us all. All of us, we get Christ forever. So follow us to the crown of glory, I say. So there's a saying, as a shepherd goes, so goes the sheep. When the elders are living in such a way, they are looking forward to the unfading glory. The sheep will begin to naturally follow. And the very way the elders have exampled Christ towards the flock, so the flock will example to one another. And last, we are to be clothed with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The church, in following the lead and the example of the elders then becomes the very example of Christ in humility and is to be then clothed in that humility. To clothe appears only here in the New Testament. The idea is to wrap yourself completely in godly virtue. Completely like a blanket, just wrap it around you. C.J. Mahaney speaks of humility this way, the pursuit of true greatness as biblically defined. 
Serving others for the glory of God. Humility. Serving others for the glory of God. This is the genuine expression of humility. This is true greatness as the Savior defined it. And we are to be clothed in this humility toward one another. Toward one another. So if the genuine definition of humility is our service towards one another to the glory of God, then the saying of C.S. Lewis stands true that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Peter is telling the church, whether they are pastors or congregants, they are to be known for humility, where? Towards one another. Humility towards one another. And so the pastor ought to be leading the congregation in humility, showing the church how to serve one another. It is to be such a virtue in the church that that is what defines the church. You want to be known for something in the city? Let us be known for humility. Consider how humility plays a part in suffering. Humility amidst suffering reminds the church that Jesus thought of her over his own life. Humility amidst suffering reminds the church that Jesus will sustain his bride until he physically, bodily returns in perfect glory. Humility amidst suffering reminds the church they are utterly dependent upon God. Humility amidst suffering reminds the church the goal is not more power, more fame, or even acceptance within a society, but a desire to serve one another for the sake of Christ. When the church lives in humility towards one another, they will experience an endless pouring of grace in their lives from God. The opposite of humility is pride. Imagine the suffering church operating under pride. I know I'm going to come upon an hour. Just stick with me here. Five more minutes, maybe. Pride amidst suffering results in pastoring for selfish gain. Pride amidst suffering results in self-centered service. I'm going to do me. You do you. Pride amidst suffering results in embitteredness against God and his people. Pride amidst suffering results in shepherds feeding and watering themselves while starving the sheep and depriving them a cool drink. Pride amidst suffering results in denying Jesus if it means your identity or life are put in jeopardy. A church operating under pride will fall and be destroyed. It will not endure. It will not stand. Just like pride in your marriage, pride in your relationships, pride in everything, your parenting will not last. But a church wrapped with the virtue of humility, the virtue and humility of Christ will be given favor. Proverbs 3, 34 and 35 says, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools disgrace. What would it be like if our church was known for being humble and joyful this next season of suffering? Because it's coming. There's a lot coming down with the issues of COVID, race, sex, politics. 
instead of being a church that is most known for what we're against, what if we would be known as a church for most for who we are in Christ? The world is going to continue to rage and become more aggressive. But what if we, the church, were the beacon of peace and joy amidst really the storm that is here and is coming? And I'm not saying we turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to sin and evil. In no way am I saying that. But what if our church body was robust in her ability to one another with humility for the glory of God? What if we were so strong in that? What would it do to us? What would it do to our community, to the West Central neighborhood, to the places that we send out missionaries and church planters and church revitalizers? What would it do to communities if we had a robust humility about us? We will be tempted to puff up with pride in the days ahead, but I want to challenge you to be clothed with humility. Because I assure you the elders will be keeping not only a close eye on our own souls, but also on pride and humility within the body. Making sure that we are doing what we can to follow in the example of Christ. But there's grace. There's grace, church. Grace everywhere. Grace for the elders. Grace for the flock Grace for us all. We're going to fumble all along the way. We will make mistakes. We will sin. We will just fail in small ways, huge ways, whatever it is. But there is grace. God's not calling us to work our way to him, but to just work out of the salvation that he has already provided for us. There is grace, church. And so I want to ask you and invite you to follow us in that. To clothe yourselves with the example of Christ. To clothe yourselves with an unfading glory. And to clothe yourselves with the humility of Christ for the glory of God.